Jesus to be the answer to his doubts. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, chapters 11 and 12, we see a number of responses to Jesus. There are a couple of responses which are positive, but the vast majority of the responses to Jesus we see here are very negative responses. And so when we get to chapter 13, the parables that Jesus speaks there speak really of what we should expect as God's people as we talk about Jesus. And we see that a lot of responses in those parables are negative. A few weeks ago, uh, we heard a sermon on the parable of the soils, didn't we? And there are four soils, three of which are bad, one of which is good. That's the kind of ratio uh, we see as we go through chapters 11 and 12. It's important that we look at the responses to Jesus for two reasons. First of all, it causes us to examine our own hearts. When we look at the responses of different people in Matthew's Gospel, it should make us look at our own hearts and say, how am I responding to Jesus? Now, whilst the negative responses are the responses of those who are unbelievers, and is a challenge to those of you here this evening that do not believe in Jesus, within our Christian lives, we can experience times where we respond in some of these ways as well. And so as we look at their responses, we can examine our hearts and we can say, is there anything of that response in my life as I look at Jesus? But the second reason why it's important to look at the responses of these people is so that we know what to expect when we share our faith with others as well. Because how people responded to Jesus in these chapters of Matthew is exactly the same way as people respond to Jesus today. When we talk of Christ, you will see various responses, and the responses that you will see not, are not necessarily exclusively found here, but generally you'll see the different responses people have to Jesus in these chapters in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 24, we see two responses that I want us to focus on tonight. And they are the responses of criticism and coldness. Criticism and coldness. So let's see uh, those responses as we read Matthew chapter 11 from verses 16 to 24. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on that day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, 
you will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. This is God's word. And the first response we see there in verses 16 to 19 is the response of criticism. Having finished talking about the greatness of John the Baptist and those within the kingdom of heaven, Jesus begins to talk about this generation. This generation that he's talking about are the generation that has seen Jesus come and has seen the work that he has been doing. Jesus is speaking here to the crowds. Uh, In chapter uh, 11, verse 1, he goes around teaching and preaching in the towns of Galilee. And this is one of his teaching times. He's teaching the crowds, and the crowds are this generation who he's talking about. He wants to make the point to them that their response to the kingdom of God's coming and the proclamation of it is not a good response. And to teach them that their response is bad, Jesus uses an illustration. He says, to what can I compare this generation in other words what illustration can i give that will show what your response to me and my kingdom is and jesus gives this illustration look at verses 16 and 17 so this generation are like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others we played the pipe for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not mourn Well, we need to explain what this illustration is talking about. Well, in those days, it seemed that children would play in the marketplaces. And as today, uh, you may notice that children play games often where they imitate an experience that is common. So, for example, uh, children enjoy playing uh, schools where they imitate their teachers. Or they like to play mums and dads where they imitate their mums and dads. And actually... If you watch the children play these games, they are quite scary because their imitations are very accurate and usually those imitations that are accurate are on the things you don't really want them to imitate, aren't they? I remember one parents' evening, I I went to school and I said, yeah, uh, we we, we play uh, schools at home and they were really worried, thinking, oh, I wonder what they're imitating at home because it could be quite uh, a frightening thing, can't it? But in these days, the children would not play schools necessarily, uh, but... They might not play mums and dads, but they did play weddings and funerals. Now, I've seen children play weddings. Uh, I was involved in wedding games when I was a child. I wasn't the pastor. (laughs) Usually I was in the congregation, I wasn't the groom either. But I've never seen a child uh, play funerals. But these were events that were common at the time and that children would have known and children would have played. And the pipe would have been played for the wedding game And the dirge, which was a funeral song, was played for the funeral game. But in the illustration, the children are playing these games, but when they played the pipe, no one wanted to dance. They didn't want to play that game, so they thought, well, we'll play funerals, and they played the dirge, but no one mourned. They didn't want to play that game. Nobody wanted to play. They didn't want to do anything. And the pipe and the dirge was just played but nothing really happened. They just said, I don't want to play. 
They were being, if you like a, a, maybe an older word, contrary. They didn't want to do anything. Well, what's the point of the illustration? Well, verses 18 and 19 show us what the point of the illustration is. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and he say, they say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, we're still in the section where Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and Jesus and John had two very different ministries. Uh, John, both proclaimed the kingdom of God, but in rather different ways. So John, he was like the dirge. He was an austere man who proclaimed judgment and repentance. That wasn't wrong. It wasn't a wrong uh, thing for him to do. It wasn't a bad thing for him to do. That was his role. It, it, there, there is a time when we need to proclaim that judgment is coming. It's important that we don't miss that part of the gospel out. And there is a time for fasting rather than feasting. That was John's ministry. But Jesus was very different. In chapter 9 and verse 14, when John's disciples came to Jesus, they recognized how Jesus was very different to John. They asked Jesus why his disciples did not fast. And do you remember Jesus' response? You can just flick back a page in your Bibles uh, to chapter 9 and verse 14. They said in verse 14, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus responded, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And so Jesus uses himself, the illustration of a wedding, to explain his coming and his ministry. He is the bridegroom that's come. It's not the time for mourning because there's a wedding. But when John's disciples were with John, their ministry was more of a dirge, more of a, a funeral. And so Jesus uses this illustration to show the difference between his ministry and John's. But, and here's the point, nobody wanted to play with either. When John came, what did they say about him? Well, they, say, they moaned about him, saying, well, John has a demon. They did not mourn and they did not repent. They criticized and they complained. He has a demon. And so Jesus comes after John and he has a different approach where he ate and he drank in the homes of the lowliest in society and they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They did not repent at John. They did not repent at Jesus. They criticized and complained at both. Now Jesus was not a glutton or a drunkard. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It was them he came to save. John did not have a demon, but they came to present the kingdom of God and they came to call people to repent. And what did the people do? They complained, they criticized. And isn't it the same today as the kingdom of God is presented? So you show that Jesus is going to judge and we're told, well, that's just too harsh. You show that Jesus is love, well, that's too soppy. You can't please either. You show the miracles of Jesus and show that he is God, and there's an excuse, well, that's just not possible. The Bible is just not accurate. There must be some scientific explanation, and it's criticised. You speak about God's word, about the Trinity, 
or about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and it seems so uh, difficult for us to understand and because we can't understand it fully people say well that just doesn't make sense and it can't be true. You hear how science or archaeology has proved Christianity wrong and then you ask well how has it proved Christianity wrong and they'll say well it just has and they have no idea but it's just an excuse and a criticism. We hear those kind of things uh, all the time. There is always an excuse, often without thinking through the answers. And this response, by the way, is not a response that really needs answers to their questions, because whatever answers are given, there's always excuses and criticism that's returned. And you can end up in pointless arguments over silly things, and we need to know sometimes the wisdom of when to stop. So what can you say to people who respond with criticism? Well, look at what Jesus said at the end of verse 19. He said, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. How do we know that the claims of Jesus and of John were right? Well, we know it by the impact that they had. Both John and Jesus were criticized for their lifestyles, for different reasons. But both of them bore tremendous fruit through their lives. When John came, it was a, a revival in Israel. Baptisms of many people happened. People were prepared for Jesus to come. Some of John's disciples were, went away and followed Jesus themselves. Some became part of the Twelve. John proclaimed the kingdom of heaven in a greater way than anyone had before him. And his deeds showed the wisdom of his life. And then there was Jesus. He was criticized. He was crucified. But he was vindicated when he was raised from the dead. And the impact of his death and resurrection has borne fruit throughout history as the church has grown and grown. And the impact it has had on the world for good has been immense. Today, Jesus and the church are criticized all the time. But Jesus is coming back, and we will see who the wise ones are. Wisdom will be proved right by her deeds. Those who follow Jesus will be proved to be the ones who have got this right in our response. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, these um, words which many of you will know. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will be criticized as Christians. We will be mocked. We will be uh, looked down on and, and thought of as silly and foolish and all those things. But in the end, wisdom is proved right by her deeds. We will be seen as we bow before Jesus. We've got this one right. He is Lord. And everyone will see that he is Lord. So we should expect criticism for believing in and following Jesus. But don't let it get you down. Don't get riled up and get into fruit, fruitless arguments. Christ and his church will be proved right in the end when every knee bows before our king. So we've seen the response of criticism. 
But in verses 20 to 24, we see the response of coldness. After talking about uh, the critics in his generation, uh, Jesus, in verse 20, began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. It's interesting, uh, by the way, to note that the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida have no mention in the Gospels of any miracles being performed there. Chorazin and Bethsaida were towns in Galilee, and we know from chapter 4 and verse 23 of Matthew that Jesus went throughout Galilee, uh, healing and, and preaching. Uh, in John's Gospel, he writes that there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain all of the deeds and works of Jesus. And I think this is an example of that. So don't worry that you can't find in the Gospels what exactly happened in Chorazin and Bethsaida. It doesn't matter. Jesus did so much, John tells us it couldn't even be contained if all the books in the world uh, had it written in them. But why did he denounce these towns? Well, look at the end of verse 20. He denounced them. Why? Because they did not repent. The purpose of Jesus' coming was not to just show people lots of miracles. The purpose of the miracles was to show who he was and to show that he was able to do what he was uh, promised to come and do, which was to save his people from their sins. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Mary, uh, Joseph is told, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And the offer of forgiveness needs the response of repentance. Jesus has shown through his miracles, his saving power, his compassion, how sin and disease and death uh, are all eliminated by his power. And in chapters 8 and 9, we saw uh, many miracles, but they are interspersed by these uh, accounts or discourses on discipleship. So we see the calling of Matthew, the question on fasting, the call to go to the harvest field. So Jesus performed miracles, but gave uh, a message on how to respond to what was going on. And the response that is required is the response of repentance, a turning from sin towards Jesus, following him as our king. But the towns that Jesus mentions here did not repent, and so he denounces them. He denounces them using this word, woe. Woe is a, a curse or a promise of judgment that is coming. And Jesus uses a prophetic language of the kind used in the Old Testament prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel all have huge chunks of their prophecies which denounced, and pronounced, uh, denounced towns and nations and pronounced judgment on them. And some of those nations and places that are denounced uh, are um, Tyre and Sidon, which Jesus mentions here. They're mentioned in verse 21. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Well, what was Tyre and Sidon? Well, they were cities that were seen as wretched by the Jewish people. They were cities that, that were seen as under the curse of God. And they were located just to the northeast of Galilee, where Jesus was at this time. And they were cursed by God because of their sin. They were a greedy people. 
who use their advantageous coastal position to feed their greed. In fact, in uh, the book of Amos, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 9, they're cursed there uh, for selling people into slavery. And the Jewish people look down on Tyre and Sidon. They look down on them as they did to all non-Jewish nations. So imagine the surprise that these people had when Jesus said, well, if what happened in in Chorazin and Bethsaida had happened in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre and Sidon, those cities that you think are wretched, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. Sackcloth and ashes, by the way, are, are symbols of mourning. In other words, they would have repented. But the self-righteous people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, whilst not criticising Jesus as such, whilst not necessarily seeming hostile, they just did, well, nothing. All of these miracles happened and they didn't repent. Their response was one of indifference, one of coldness. Tyre and Sidon did nothing. Chorazin and Bethsaida did nothing. The same kind of response, but notice how the judgment is not the same. Look at verse 22. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Well, we read here of the day of judgment. This talks about the end of time when God finally judges all people. And if we put our trust in Jesus, we will stand before God and we will give an account. And if we've trusted in Jesus, we know that Jesus has taken our punishment for our sin. So we're not going to be judged for our sin. Jesus has been judged for our sin. Our judgment is is, is based on reward for how we've lived for God. But for unbelievers, which is who Jesus really is talking about here, they are judged for their sin. And the punishment is hell. That's what the Bible teaches. And on this day of judgment, why is it going to be more bearable for the terrible cities of Tyre and Sidon than for the far more civilized and Bible-believing followers uh, of uh, cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Why is it that these wicked cities of the Old Testament are going to seem to have a lesser judgment than these cities that know uh, of the Bible, they know of God? Why is it going to be worse? Because Chorazin and Bethsaida have seen the miracles of Jesus. They have more knowledge. I have a, we have an uncle in uh, the States who sometimes uh, comes over to the UK uh, for work. And last time we were in the States, he was telling me a, of a story of when he came over uh, and he was driving in London. And in London, he was in his car uh, and going up the wrong way up a bus lane. And so the police uh, came and pulled him over uh, and knocked on his window and he winds it down and the policeman said to him, have you, do you, have you any idea what you're doing? And he, he, his response was, no, I have no idea what I'm doing. He said, the car has this stick on it that I don't know really what I'm doing with it. He says, you've got lanes all over the place that I don't know where I'm going. The, you drive on the wrong side of the road and the steering wheel is on the wrong side of the car. He had no idea what he was doing. And so the policeman, <laughs> he said, laughed at him, uh, gave him some advice and let him go. I, a couple of years ago, went the right way down a bus lane, and I had a letter in the post with a fine 
saying I have to pay because I've gone down a lane I should not have gone. Now I could say, but that's not fair. But really, if you think about it, it is, isn't it? Because my Uncle Rex in America really did have no idea what he was doing. He shouldn't have really been in the car. And I said, maybe next time, give us a ring and we can give you a lift somewhere. But the police understood that he had no knowledge. And so they let him go, having told him what to do. I should have read the signs at best, was in a rush and went down it on purpose at worst. I'm not going to tell you which, but I knew or know what I'm doing. And what Jesus is saying here is something of a, of a similar truth. It's a doctrine in the Bible that perhaps we don't like very much, but it's true that there are degrees of judgment in the scripture. It's spoken of in a number of places. For example, in Revelation uh, chapter 20, in verse 12, it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. The dead were judged, and here's the key point, according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So the judgment is based on what people have done. In our Bible reading in Luke chapter 12 earlier on, this is what Jesus summarized at the end. The servant who knows, so it's knowledge, the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So there is the indifferent person who knows the master's will, knows what God expects until he returns, but doesn't get ready. Or he just disobeys. Jesus says he'll be punished with many blows, but then there's the ignorant person who does not know about God, but still disobeys him. He'll be punished with few blows. Do you see that there in the, those verses? So it's based on, on knowledge. So Tyre and Sidon had a lot less knowledge than Chorazin and Bethsaida, because Chorazin and Bethsaida had Jesus walking through their towns, performing all of these miracles. So what do you think Jesus would say to our town? What do you think Jesus would say to our area of the black country? What would Jesus say to our nation? I think he would say something very similar to what he is saying to Chorazin and Bethsaida. We have the whole word of God in our own language, and we've had it for many, many years. We can read of what Jesus has done. We live in a culture where most people, not everybody, but most people can read and write. We have churches that teach the Bible. We have sermons broadcast on the internet, many of which are very good. We have the freedom to worship. And we have a history and laws that are based on the Bible. What Jesus says here applies very much, I think, to our nation, to our culture. So what Jesus says here is indifference in to him when we have so much knowledge and opportunity will result in a severe judgment. We often think of ourselves as better and more sophisticated in our day than people in the past. 
We might look at ancient cities like Tyre and Sidon and, and we are just like Chorazin and Bethsaida perhaps and we think, well, they're just wicked Old Testament cities. But Jesus shakes us up and perhaps shocks us here and says, but you know more and so your judgment will be more severe. And to reinforce the, the point, Jesus uses a second illustrative city, that of Capernaum. Now we often think of Jesus as uh, born in Bethlehem, which he was, and growing up in Nazareth, which he did. Both of them are true, but when Jesus began his ministry, his base of operations was actually Capernaum. Uh, this city had seen more of Jesus' miracles than perhaps anywhere else. Much of what we read about in chapters 8 and 9 happened in Capernaum. So Jesus was based in their town and he had done very much there. So surely, as Jesus asks in verse 23, Capernaum, with Jesus being there, is going to be lifted up to the heavens. Sure, what a privilege, what a, what a town. They've had Jesus walk there. He's done all this work. Surely they're, they're, they're in that, they're, they're there, they're in heaven. Well, not at all. Look at verse 23. Look what he says about them. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The fact that Jesus was based in their town did not lift them up to the heavens. Rather, their indifference or coldness condemned them to hell. Uh, the reference there of Hades, Hades is, is the place of the dead, it's a, a place of punishment, it's the place where the wicked go. And it's where you expect people from places like Sodom to go. Sodom is a name, even in our day, which is notorious for its wickedness based on their be the behaviour of the people there in Genesis chapter 19. No Jewish city, indeed no city even in our day, would like to compare themselves to Sodom. But Jesus says if he had performed the miracles in Sodom that he has performed in Capernaum, well, Sodom would not have been destroyed because Sodom would have repented. And again, the degree of judgment for Capernaum, Jesus says in verse 24, will be worse than that of Sodom when the final judgment comes. Now, for some of us, we have grown up in church. For some of us, we have grown up in Christian families. Some of you have parents who are believers and tell you about Jesus. And Jesus is a part of your life like he was in Capernaum. He just, he's there. He lives there. He lives in your home. He lives in your family. You've been told about Jesus all your life. What an immense privilege to grow up with a family who tell you about Jesus. What an immense privilege for Capernaum to have Jesus living there, performing the miracles. But there are dangers to this situation that we need to be aware of. Uh, two uh, come to mind. Two dangers to having Jesus living in your home, if you like. One is the danger of arrogance. When we are taught the Bible from very young, we can become puffed up because we know a lot. We can look down on others who are not like us and we can think that we are somehow better because we know so much. And I think that can be especially true in church, can't it? 
People uh, can come who are new. They're a bit different. They don't know how things work and they don't know what we know. And they can make us uncomfortable and we can think, well, we are better than them. Because I've been here my whole life. I've read the Bible since I was this high. Well, that was perhaps a problem with Capernaum. I think the clue is there when Jesus says, are you lifted up to the heavens? I think there was an arrogance there. There was a self-righteousness, which is why the comparison to Sodom was such a shock to them. But with the knowledge that we have, there is less of an excuse for rejecting what Jesus says, which can happen when we think we are righteous based on our background. We can think we are righteous because, well, Jesus has always been in my home. You see? Whereas actually, there is no one who is born, apart from Jesus, who doesn't need forgiveness of sin. We all do. We are all sinners, regardless of where we have come from. So beware, if Jesus is living in your home, of arrogance. But the second danger is the danger of apathy. There's arrogance and then there's the danger of apathy. When we have heard about Jesus our whole lives, when Jesus is living in our town, so to speak, we can stop listening because we can think, well, I've heard all this before. We come to amazing stories in the Bible and we can say, yeah, but I know that. I've, I've heard that story before. So I'm just going to switch off here. I'm going to start counting the bricks in the building because I know this story really well. And the Bible, which is an amazing book, which is God's word, can become boring for us. When actually, when you think afresh about what's happening here, it's amazing, isn't it? What God is doing. And we can think we shouldn't listen because we've heard it before. We can think we know it all. We are apathetic. That's a danger if Jesus is living in your hometown. And that's where Capernaum was. Their arrogance and their apathy made them indifferent to what Jesus was doing and they were judged. And here's the thing. You can end up in hell having known all about Jesus. You can end up in hell having known about him since you were a child. You can go to church your whole life and never really know Jesus in your heart. Repentance is what is needed. When Jesus is presented in the Gospels, how often the response can be coldness. I mean, I've, I've talked to people uh, about hell, and there's been a, well, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of, that's nice for you to believe. I've actually, someone actually said that to me one time. I think it's not nice for me to believe. But there's a coldness, isn't there? Let us never look at the empty tomb of Jesus and say, yeah, but I know that. Let's never, never cease to be amazed that he has died and he has risen for our sins. Perhaps you are feeling cold towards Jesus. Well, pray that God would warm you with the truth as you hear his word. Well, as I conclude, I just want to give three uh, very brief applications in light of these responses that we've seen. And I think the first thing we have to say in light of criticism and coldness is that we need to repent. Because all of us, whether we're Christians or not, really at some times in our lives, 
have these responses to a greater or lesser degree, don't we? Where we criticise the church, we criticise uh, Jesus, or we're cold and don't really care. We need to repent of those responses. Secondly, I think we need to show Jesus to people. We're looking at the responses to Jesus, and I think there is a, a, a bit of an application here that we need to be sharing Jesus so that we can get a response, whatever that response would be. Jesus was being shown through his words and deeds, and we need to do the same. And finally, one of the reasons Matthew, I believe, puts these responses here is so that we are not surprised. Don't be surprised that as you talk of Jesus, some people criticise you and some people just don't care at all about what you're saying. But occasionally, there will also be repentance. Occasionally, there will be times when people will come and they'll say, yes, I see who Jesus is and I'm going to follow him. And next week, or next, or two weeks rather, as we come to the next section of Matthew, we see a much better response, which is the response to come to me in verse 28. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But for now, we're going to respond with singing. And let's, as we sing, really think about what we're singing so that we're singing from our hearts, not just with coldness. Let's sing from our hearts about the greatness of God as we stand and we sing, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Let's stand and let's sing together.